Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and I'm only as hip as my guest. And I got to tell you, I'm uh, very excited to have this gentleman on my show because, one, he's an amazing musician. Two, he's a Rock and Roll Hall of Famer. And three, like myself, he's from New Jersey, where I am right now. And my guest is David Sanchez. Uh, How you doing, David? Hey. I'm well, man. How are you doing? Good. Now, now you're from Belmar. Well, you grew up in Long Beach. You're in Belmar, which was funny. I was visiting... I was visiting my friend in Spring Lake in the beginning of March, and we were going to see a band, my friend's cover band in Point Pleasant, and we went to Bar A in uh, Belmar, and we saw a, in my travels, I saw there was a, a benefit for you, like to get, name a piano after you, right? Tell me about that. It was like your, you and your mom were getting a, a weatherproof piano or something? <laughs> it's wild, isn't it? They called me last year about this project, so uh, it's the 150th the anniversary of my town, Belmar, New Jersey, where I grew up. I was only I was born in Long Branch, but we lived in um, in Asbury Park until I was six, and then we moved from Asbury Park to Belmar. So the, everything from after that was in Belmar. But uh, they said that they it's being the 150th anniversary of the existence of the town of Belmar. They wanted to honor my mother and myself. And the way they want to do it, there's a device called a, it's a weatherproof piano. It's basically a digital piano in the shape of a concert piano, but it's, it's in concrete. And there's no, all the electronics are, are protected by this sort of, you know, uh, hermetic shields and all that stuff. It's, it's pretty wild. I think there's about 50 of them in the world. Uh, it was de developed in Israel uh, somewhere. And there's, uh, there's a few universities, I think, in America that have it. Um, there's some in London, there's some in, uh, in Italy and Rome. So they said, look, we'd like to, uh, we'd like to honor your mother and, and, and yourself. My mother comes into it because my mother was my first uh, piano teacher. She really is uh, responsible for getting the whole ball rolling with me as far as, uh, as, far as music. And she was also a very influential um, an educator in the area. She taught school, she taught public school from the age of 19 uh, until she retired at 64. And she taught a lot in the, uh, uh, the Neptune uh, school system, uh, also some in, in, uh, in Belmar. But, um, and I guess I, I come in, I suppose, because it seems I've done something in the world of music over after <laughs> a lot of years. <laughs> and they, they wanted to, um, to honor both of us with this thing. So they're gonna install it in uh the town plaza right in the middle of town and it's a big open square and uh the videos they showed me when they were pitching the idea to me um it's it's like that it's just a piano but they put them in these open spaces where anyone could come and sit down and play the instrument you know and a lot of spontaneous uh um events happen like that musically there's there's videos where um you can tell a person is professional when they sit down to play, and it's it's very nice. It is what it is. And there's a, a lot of other times where spontaneously someone will get on the instrument, and then someone else will come along and join in. But, um, yeah, so that's what it is. And uh, it's supposed to take place sometime this fall, I think, um, sometime this fall in Belmar. Um, yeah, but so they're still, we're still in the details of it. They, I think, just purchased the actual instrument. And that takes about, like, I don't know, five or six weeks for that to show up here. And then you have to install it and do all this whole kind of stuff. 
but um, that's what that uh, is about. That's awesome. You know, I want to talk about you've had a great career, but now you, I, I heard somewhere you have an album, Prisoners of Consciousness. Now, now is that out yet, or are you working on that, or what's up? No, what's up with that is it is not out yet. Although most of the music for it, I'm going to say basic tracks wise, is recorded already. It was recorded in my old studio in Woodstock. I'm in my my new space here in in um, in the Hawaii, which is uh, it's a different space, it's smaller but really functional. Um, so I'm working on that now. I'm working on finishing it. There's, and I, I'm going to say percentage wise, I'm going to say that musically, it's about. 70% recorded, you know, basic tracks wise and everything. I'm working on lyrics and and there's going to be a bunch of uh, overdubs and synthesizer and guitar and some vocals, quite a lot of vocals on this next one coming up. But um, I've had a change of heart about um, what I'm going to call it. The original title was Prisoners of Consciousness and there's a basic track that has Will Calhoun playing drums on it. Uh, and it's going to be another, pr probably myself, about three or four different drummers. Um, and uh, let's see, Ernest Carter is going to be on it. Um, Vinnie Kaliuta is going to do something for me, I believe. And Dennis Chambers, uh, maybe Nard or Michael Walden. Uh, but it'll be myself and um, and drummers doing, doing things. Um, but I think I'm going to change the title from Prisoners of Consciousness to, uh, it's, it's an idea I've had for some years, years now. It's been eating away at me. And I was working on this song called The Ghost of Jim Crow. And I think the whole album is going to be called that, that rather than have that be uh, a song with Prisons of Consciousness being the whole title. I think I want to give more more traction to um, the idea, the concept that the Jim Crow uh, policies and, and things are um, uh, very much alive again in the United States. and. Uh, I want to have my say about that, you know. How how much has it changed? You know, you think about it. You you know, you've recorded the early Springsteen albums. You recorded your solo work, Sting. You know, back then it was like so studio driven. You know, you had to go in and record the albums. Now you could take your time. Like as an artist, is it does yeah. that make you a little bit? lazier because you have the time instead of being under the gun or how does that work because the creative process works so different because we always say you know i i used to do stand-up comedy and I, I i write and you know right. you you can't if we want to sit down and write we're, we're cleaning our desk we don't want to get there but then once we sit down we're into it and then we leave next day we go oh, i don't want to sit down but how is it now because you can take it like you said you're you're in the middle you've changed your name back then the studio would be like no 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 you're not doing that david you're not doing that yeah, you would have had it's it, well, to answer your question generally. It's a very different game recording uh, these days. Uh, that combined the fact that you don't uh, necessarily have to have a uh, oh, there we go. I went full screen on you. Um, that you don't have to have um, an affiliation with a with a label, you know, and you can do your own thing. But it, what it doesn't do, it doesn't make you lazy. It doesn't make you lazy. Let me change that back to, yeah, that's better. Um, no, if anything, it, it lets you it lets you relax. It lets you um, it lets you really get comfortable with an idea. You know, uh, it lets you 
how can I say it? Yeah, the fact that uh, that I can't be overruled by the label or something like that that I want. That's a, that's a small example. But look, the combination of that plus the the access that we have now um, to uh, digital software, uh, music software is, is outrageous. It's really crazy. The, the difference and the um, let me say the flexibility, the flexibility that that gives you is just it's really wild and it's a joy actually. That's one really positive thing I'd say about there's a lot of things about the uh, current music industry that are really messed up, uh, especially the financial side of things. Um, when you're talking about royalties and royalty payments and streaming and all this stuff, it's very squirrely and it's very, very unfair, uh, mostly to the creators of the stuff, to the musicians and the artists themselves. But the other part is positive side of that, and that's all because of you know digitization. But the positive side to that is the access that we have as artists to software to create. It's really, really, really amazing, really amazing. So, um, but no, uh, it doesn't make you lazy. No, <laughs> I, I think lazy is not right. I think it, it makes me procrastinate. That's what I'll say. It's not. It makes me procrastinate, not lazy, because you always want to create. Now, yeah. you you said your mom was your first piano teacher. What? What made you pick up an instrument? You know, what was, was there something that you just went, you heard something and you went, I have to play or what made you start playing? What made me start playing was one fine day, we moved from Asbury Park to um, Belmar. And uh, my mom and dad had worked really hard. They were determined that we were going to grow up in a better environment than the one we were in in um, in, in Belmar. So my job at that age, I think I was five and a half years old, and uh, my job at that time was to take all my toys and put them in one box, you know, my box for my toys, and that was my responsibility. Put all your toys in a box and walk them out to the car and put it in the, or put it there and dad will put it in the car. Boom, I did that. We drive eight miles south to Belmar, and we pull up to this place. It was like a whole other, uh, oh, God. It was just like going from economy to business class or something in terms of, in terms of you know, the house, uh, what the house was like, the neighborhood. Um, so as we start bringing our stuff in now into the house, there's a piano there. And it's just it was the only thing left in the house. The only piece of furniture left in the house was a piano, and it was an upright piano. And as I'm walking in, I set my box down and my mom, I didn't know she could do this. My mom sat down and started to play the piano and she played beautifully. You know, when I was little, when she was younger, she played, she could play Chopin, Beethoven, whatever. She was a great sight reader. And she sat down and started playing this music, classical music. And I was like hypnotized. I was like, man, you know, it's like you think you know someone. And then suddenly they start doing something you had no idea, and it was so impressive. So I, from that moment on, I sat down. And the reason is she didn't have access to a piano of her own for many, many years. She would play piano, which I didn't realize because she didn't teach me. But when she was a teacher in, in Neptune and stuff, she had access to a piano. She would play like in the assemblies and all that kind of stuff. And she also played in church. I didn't know she could play but she played organ in church sometimes she would sit in for the organist if he was not well he or she was not well but uh that's what it was i was just uh fascinated by by that and i would sit on the steps 
next to the piano and just listen to her for hours, watch her play. I would like stare at her hands and just watch her play. And then on top of all that, it's like the beauty of the music itself really, really got to me. I think her, and to this day, one of my favorite composers is Chopin. Chopin and Debussy. Um, I, she played a lot of that stuff, you know, a little bit of Beethoven, and I'm kind of the same way, you know. Uh, <laughs> Chopin and Debussy are favorites, a little bit of Beethoven. Um, but uh, that's what's uh, responsible for, for, I think, getting me started. I was just totally mesmerized by it. Well, at what point did you know it was going to be your career? Because it's like anything. Everyone, you know, people, we all play sports when we're young, we play instruments, but none of us go further. At what point did you did you say to yourself, you know what, or did your parents support you and say, you know, David, you're very talented. You, you're going to take this a long way. When did you know this would be your life calling? I think when I was about seven. What? Yeah, it was five and a half when I started. Yeah, so by seven years old, I was like, for sure, this is what I want to do. The seven is when I got interested. I wanted to play, learn how to play guitar also. You know, because we, we our, my, musically, my family was really like very broad. My father's taste in music ran towards jazz, you know, not exclusively, but heavily jazz music and, and jazz singers. My mother, same thing, not exclusively, but heavily on uh, classical music. My older brother, I have two older brothers. The oldest brother is very much into jazz, but the avant-garde side of jazz. My middle brother, who actually lives here in Hawaii, about 10 minutes away from me, uh, he was very much into like um, rock and roll and electronic music and and uh, Indian classical music. You know, he turned me on to a lot of things. And then I came along, the fifth one in the family, and I had my own attractions and things that I heard, but I was also influenced by what they already were into you know so the house was like a jukebox man we heard i mean seriously you could in the morning you might hear some 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 chopin before mom goes off to work and then here comes the evening time here's dad playing like jimmy smith and and uh duke ellington and you know ella fitzgerald and then here's me and my brothers playing whatever we were into all day long so it was a lot of um and I'm sure that that's why I sort of compose the way I do. I realize that it's just, I just dumped on with this whole, uh, just a sea of influence and then added to that my own personal things, you know. Now, as, as you're knowing it's your calling at seven, of course, you're not going to go join a band at seven unless it's a school band. When you're getting older in your teens, what was the Jersey Shore scene like? Because I grew up, I grew up in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, which is ten minutes from Philadelphia. So we heard the right. Philadelphia music, and we heard early spring scene on WMMR and YSP all the time. But when you were right. starting, what was the Jersey scene like? I had talked to little Stephen a while ago, and he said, you know, it was it was it had a great vibe. I mean, was there a vibe where you guys supportive? What was it like? There was a vibe. I mean, that was the scene, quotation marks, was in its infancy then. Uh, the scene existing of, you know, the beach bar places that uh, would have you. Uh, there was a lot of competition to uh, to to get into a, a place to play. But we had about four or five places like the, the Student Prince and, um, oh, God, I can't think of it all now. But it was it was young. You know, and yeah, there was a vibe. There was an, there was a vibe because you got to sort of tie that into what was musically happening, right? 
what was the music of that time was sort of also fresh and innovative, right? The music coming from England and and uh, uh, music coming from the south of uh, of this country and 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 from the east, from Chicago and the north, it's, and from California, you know. Um, so it was a scene, but I think the vibe was generated more by the music itself, you know, the music that we were learning, the music that was popular, you know, uh, at the time, uh, more by the music itself than by necessarily the personalities um, at the time. But and some of those really stand out and, and develop later. But uh, no, it, I think for all of us, we were just happy to have any place to play. That was really it, you know, and all at that age and you're concerned, you know, you're not married, you don't have a mortgage, you don't have, you know, all the responsibilities that are going to come your way later in life. And all you want to do is play. You're happy to just play and play. You play with anybody just about, you play anywhere just about, just get me there, you know. Um, and you, you wanted to continue. And because that's where all the, that's where all the growth was as a musician. The more you played, the better you got, the more experience you got, literally. Um, and the more fun you had, because at the bottom line of all, what is this all about, this music that we're doing? It's about how it makes you feel, you know? It's about how deeply you feel anything, whether it's a super happy song, energetic, or whether it's the saddest song you've ever heard in your life, and you'll be crying before it's over. But it's all about, um, it's all about that, what the music does to you inside. Now, now, how did you meet Bruce? Because you know, you, you know, it's so funny. I, I want just when we get, I want to talk about you know the Gorgon solo and Kitty's back a little later because it kicks ass. But how did how did you meet? How did you guys meet? Because you know, like when I did comedy, we go to an open mic and then we meet an act who is older and they take us under their wing and then we'd say okay, and they meet introduced to everybody. So it was almost like networking. You know, it was like this network of comedians helping each other. How did you how did you meet Bruce? Um, it wasn't like a networking thing like that. I hadn't been attempting to meet him, and I didn't know anyone who knew him personally, uh, except that um, Gary Talent and I, uh, the bass player in the street band, we had done a recording session, a private uh, recording session for somebody in, I think they were in like Spring Lake or somewhere, but they had their own little private recording studio. I don't remember the details of it, but so Gary and I met through doing that session, right? And we hit it off right away. Gary's a fantastic, fantastic human being and a great, great player. So one summer night, I was walking to, this goes back to your thing of what was the scene like. The Upstage Club was the sort of center of the whole scene as far as musicians and meeting people and playing. So I had been there a few times before, but I used to go there to dance. And I didn't really know uh, a lot of those people in that scene then, you know, me being in Belmar. Uh, so one night I decided I'm going to go to Upstage Club. And uh, it was a summer night and it was eight miles away. And I remember it was summertime because I walked the whole way. Ooh, eight miles? It was eight miles. Yeah. It's a straight line. I'm kidding. It's literally a straight line from Main Street in Belmar to like, you know, Cookman Avenue, then the just the street that upstate was on. So if you're willing to walk straight for eight miles, you can get there. And it was summertime. You know, what else I have to do? I was 15. I was 15 at the time. And so I walked there this night, and um, I'm walking up the top of the stairs to get to the, it was like this 
It was over top of a shoe store. You had to walk up two levels of two flights of stairs to even get into the to the place. So as I get to the top of the stairs, Gary sees me, recognizes me, says, "Hey, uh, come over here and meet my friend Bruce." Gary and Bruce are standing next to each other at the top of the stairs, and they're organizing a jam session, which is about to start in about like you know ten, fifteen minutes, whatever. So Gary and I recognize each other. Gary says, "Hey, uh, meet my meet Bruce." And Bruce goes, hey, uh, we're organizing this jam session. Would you be interested in um, playing in it? And I said, yeah. And that was it. That that went on for about three hours. You guys jammed for like three hours? Basically, yeah. It went on until this, this club had this routine of where um, it opened up from 9 p.m. to 12. To, what was it? From 9 p.m. to 11 as a coffee house or something like that. No, 9 to 12 as a coffee house. Then they had to empty the place out completely and shut it down. And then they would open up again the upper level, which was the music level, from 1 to 5. They closed at 5 in the morning. It was a strange, like, 9 to 5, like, reverse kind of thing. And so once that jam session started, yeah, different people would come up and, and, and you know, you know go away and come back like that but uh that went on for hours and uh, uh after that was over we were walking to the cars it was like five in the morning sun's kind of coming up and he was telling me that he had an idea to um he already was in a, a very popular band called steel mill and uh he was telling me then as we we're walking to the car i think he gave me a ride home with belmar because i didn't have a car um I even have a bike then. So he said, listen, I'm thinking I'm going to uh, end this band Steel Mill and I'm going to start up something new. Would you be interested in uh, in playing keyboards in it? And I said, absolutely. Like right away it was like no hesitation or no, um, well, let me think about it or, you know, give me the details or anything. Um, yeah, and that's, that's how we met and that's how we started working together. Now, when you guys, I mean, you had that long jam session, but when you first started working together, did you gel? I mean, was there a gel? Did you? There was a certain energy that you know, because people go through bands and they go, ah, we didn't like this person, it didn't work. But when you guys all got together, when you started in, in the early days of the E Street Band, did you guys just have a really strong bond and did you gel? Uh, well, Bruce and I gelled instantly. Let me tell you that for sure. And Gary and I, Gary and I already gelled. And... Uh, Man was a little different than, and, and Danny was there. In general, we gelled. But I'm saying that, like, um, specifically person to person, uh, you know, they're all sort of different relationships. Now, what we do together as an ensemble, yeah, I'm, I'm going to say that once we're out playing and once we get done rehearsing the music, it, it gelled, you know. But as, as different personalities um, do different things, it's like having an actor replace an actor in the same movie, you know? Um, it's like sort of casting. You know, the song could remain the same, the show's the same, but this other person's gonna bring a different energy to it, because it's not the same person, but it will just gel, but in a different way. No. But to really, I don't mean to, to uh, get distracted by it, but to answer your question, uh, yeah, we, we definitely gel. Now, in the early days, who, who did you have the most common in with musical influences? What you like to listen? Was there someone that you, you guys just said, okay, we like the exact same things? Because a lot of times people have different tastes. And you, as you said, you have such a, a huge background of growing up with such a eclectic sound. I mean, who did you gel with the best? 
with 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 the influences? Who I'd really gelled with best, someone who like listen like to listen to what I like to listen to and the same was actually Ernest Carter. And Ernest Carter came in and replaced um, uh, Vinny Lopez at some point because Vinny it was an altercation with management or something. But anyway, um, Ernest is we've been close since we were kids. We used to live around the corner from each other in Asbury Park, and he was the person that I uh, and he's. Uh, I highly recommended Ernest to be in the E Street Band once we started looking for uh, another drummer. And um, yeah, we we gelled on that level. And you know, this was back in the days too of um, there were no drum machines back then. There were no loops as such, right? So if you wanted to work out a song, you know, like work out, well, how's this song going to go? What's the groove going to be? Well, how's it going to feel? Is it going to be straight up heavy rock? Is it going to be funky? Is it going to be, you know, jazzy, swing, whatever? Not every drummer was developed enough back then to do that. There was only a handful of guys playing in the first place. And they were not all equally good at everything you needed to be good at. And Ernest, in my opinion, was absolutely the best drummer in the area. So I relied on him even before he was in the band um for to work out any music that i was working on um to help help me get it together to see you know what it would sound like and then uh when i got my record contract from uh from uh, uh cbs or columbia as it was called back then um he left the band i told well bruce knew that uh i had this offer to do and then he wasn't he wasn't very surprised. He was disappointed, but he wasn't very surprised that I was going to take advantage and, you know, sign the contract and make records because we both talked about that a lot. And it's always something we both really wanted to do. But uh, Ernest left with me at the same time. And then we started um, what became Tone, David Sanchez and Tone, and, and did those records. But, yeah. Was it hard to leave? I mean, I know you, you want to... You want to branch out and go solo. It's like anything. We all want to grow as artists. Then I mean, that's what that's what we're here for. If you're an artist, if you don't want to be stagnant, but you guys, you know, you, you were getting some heat, but you're in a band. You have two albums. You're getting a studio experience. Was it a hard decision? I mean, it was in the back of your mind, but did you sit there and say, you know what, maybe I'll just hang a little longer, or did you say, did you say this? If I don't do it now, I might not do it. Yeah, I wasn't that crafty. Um, um, financially to think like mm, maybe i'll hang around a little longer and see what i can get out of it i wasn't like that it was like here's the opportunity and here's the energy for all this thing is is now it was all about doing it now i, I had no thought of like and, and also that was really before i mean we we left when born to run came out i think around that time but somewhere in there this it's a bit sketchy but I was so excited by the possibility to do what um, what I had always wanted to do, what he was doing. And he really inspired me. Uh, his work ethic, Bruce's work ethic I'm talking about, is incredible. It's just incredible. And to see him close up, how how focused he is when he works. It's, it's not like he's, he's very diligent, but he's also very focused at the same time. And at the same time as he's very focused, he's also very receptive to a good idea. Very, He'll notice anything that like someone played or did or said or something that really highlights uh, the song. So 
um, it wasn't it wasn't hard to leave. You know, I, what was hard about it was I knew it was going to be, you know, not 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 so good for Bruce. It put him in a situation where now he's got to find two other musicians of a certain level who can you know do this. You know, so that was hard because I love him dearly and I knew it was going to be something for him to work out but again he was nobody was more supportive of that actually than bruce now and he actually after i signed the contract he would he would we stayed in touch like crazy and he would say to me how are they treating you at the record label is everything good you got any problems you need me to talk to anybody and then when when um all of which was fine their label was was great at the time and when my record was done forrester feelings was done he was living in Long Branch at the time, across from the ocean, this little house, and I was living in Belmar again. We got together. I, I, I think I had a car by that time. I think I finally got a car. <laughs> I drove to his house and uh, I played him the album. I gave him uh, like one of the you know you get uh, artists get the free advanced copies. Gave him a copy of the album, and we sat and listened to the whole album. We listened to every song in the album in his living room, and he he asked questions about it, chatted, said made remarks about it. And then, uh, and it was just great. I mean, he was totally supportive. And then, uh, that was back in the day when all there was was vinyl. If you were an artist on the label, if you went to the record company for a meeting or, or something, you couldn't leave without a bag of like releases. You know, it's like they would say, hey, have you got this and this and that? You know, you'd finish your meeting, what you were there to see, whoever it was, your A&R person or, you know, the art director or whatever project you were there to deal with the record. Well, as soon as you're leaving, it would be like this shopping bag of like, just here, have this free releases, you know, uh, of either brand new stuff or anything that was interesting. So we both had like too much stuff. So we swapped. No, I didn't, we didn't swap. And he just gave me, he had just been there. And I, I had been there because I gave him my advanced copy of um, uh, Force of Feelings. And he gave me, he had a bunch of stuff and he had a bunch of classical things. I remember he gave me the Swan of Tunella. He goes, hey, David, you might think you might like this. It's orchestral. It's, it's really on the dark side, you know. It's a, it's a beautiful piece of music. So, yeah, we had a great meeting, and then um, he gave me a couple of records, and then, you know, we both went on our ways. But we have stayed in touch with each other through throughout the years, you know. Now, when you were with the E Street Band, were you preparing, were you writing for your solo career then? I mean, how were you involved with, with the writing? Because... Anything, you know, I mean, were you saying, okay, when I leave, I'm going to do this? And, I mean, were you writing your own stuff when you were in the East Street Band? Yeah, always. Absolutely. And that's how the, the offer, that's how the offer came to me while I was still in the East Street Band to, to have the recording contract with Columbia. But I was always, 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 always writing music, and, and a lot of it became stuff that ended up being on uh forest of feelings so we had played um uh the bottom line for five nights in a row bottom line doesn't exist anymore but it was a very popular place to play back then so uh, bruce had played um five nights in a row two shows a night at the bottom line and somewhere i think on one of those nights the fifth night or somewhere in there uh I'm backstage in between shows, and um, it was knocking the door. It was an A and R person, Tom Worman from uh, from Epic Records, the division of uh, Columbia. And he said, uh, 
you know, you guys sounded great. He goes, I just wanted to ask you if you're still writing music. Somehow, a demo tape that I did in Richmond, Virginia, had found its way to uh, to New York, to Columbia Records. Uh, I think the studio owner uh, actually sent it up there or something. So he said, you know, I heard this demo tape. Are you still writing music? I said, I'm writing music all the time. You know, whether, wherever I am, that's what I'm doing when I'm not working on this. So he said, well, we'd like to offer you some more um, uh, studio time with a, in a better facility and all that. So long story short, um, I took it. It took him a couple of weeks to say uh, yes. We shopped it around to some other labels. I think we shopped it to Atlantic, to Arista. And then finally, uh, Columbia said, yeah, we definitely want to offer you the contract. And there you go. You know, it's funny, your piano playing in some of the early Springsteen songs, you know, people forget about like New York City uh, Street Serenade. I mean, that's such a beautiful piece and it's something you don't expect on that album. How did that come about? Did you say, hey, I'm, I'm playing this or because it, it's that and the, the beginning of Incident on 57th Street, just such a great little piano. Did you have input? Did you get to say, did Bruce write everything or did you say, hey, Bruce, you know what? I, I got an idea. I think we should start with this. I mean, because they're both great little pieces. No, it was Bruce's idea. It was Bruce's idea to have the piano in the front of it. And he just asked me one day, as we were working out the song, I think we had done it like, um, we just worked it out harmonically, like acoustic piano, acoustic guitar. And he liked, I think he liked the way that I was playing it as a piano part, because they're simple chords. You know, it's not complicated musically. He just liked the way that I was sort of phrasing it. So after sort of learned it as chords, he said, um, why don't you do, um, why don't you do like an introduction, you know, just on your own, just play some something beautiful like that. And he didn't say something beautiful. I think he meant it to be some, something beautiful, but he said, play something in the front. And then when you're done improvising, uh, give me a signal. Now the signal ended up being this musical riff. This is uh there's like octaves, it's like ding, 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 and just a really typical classical this. Goes all the way down the piano. That was the symbol, the signal, rather, that I'm done. That's the end of the improvisation. And then the song will start. And all he ever said to me, and it was different every single night. He didn't tell me to play, oh, do that thing the way you did it last week or whatever. He just said, no, play what you want to play. And then give me give me a nod when you're about to when you know you're going to end it and then get ready for that riff and then power we're into the song, but completely his idea, as in terms of like you know, piano being in the front, uh, yeah. That's got to be a compliment. That's got to be a compliment to oh, your yeah. talent, though. That's got to be like totally. it's like, hey man, he's, totally. he's, I mean, that must totally. be awesome. Now, and he gave me so much freedom all the time, um, like that. So yeah, it was it was great. Now, how'd you end up playing the solo, the organ solo on Kitty's Back? How did, how did, because you have played this beautiful piano solo, then you're playing the organ solo. How's, how's that happen? Well, when it's time for piano solo, you play piano. When it's time for the organ, you play the organ. You know, they're different, uh, you know, different ways on different days. It's a, they're completely different songs. Uh, and Bruce likes the way I play in uh, B3 on that. And it was a very kind of, if you really notice the way that his songwriting uh, changed over from album to album, like for instance, there's no song that sounds anything like uh, Kitty's Back on uh, readings uh, from Asbury Park. Nothing. There's nothing. You can't find anything on it that sounds, you know, 
close to it, Kitty, but as far as a construction, um, it was changing time signatures, you know, different fields and all that. Um, and it, we just got, again, it was always a process with him. It was like, here's the song, basically, let's learn it. And then when it got to recording it, he goes, well, I want an organ solo here. And we had played the thing live anyway. So we knew uh, that was just, now you're in the studio, we were basically doing what we had done live, but just in a more compartmentalized way. I think we played through the whole, see, now I'm not going to remember this. I'm not remember if we played the whole song without solos or if we played it and I did the solo live while we were doing a basic track. I don't know now. That's a bit of too, a bit much detail so long ago, but um, that was that was the job of the day. We played the organ solo on Kitty's back. It was you didn't have to sort of puzzle it out. It's just you know. Does it just come to you when you play a solo? Even now, does it just come to you like you know? Do you sit there and do you just sometimes go on a riff and then your mind drifts? It's like improv, you know, on stage when you improv, you go and then you go, wow, I just can't believe I said that. When you in your career has it been like that? When you get a chance to riff, do you just have a certain freedom and just it just goes with it? Yeah, that's what it is. It's just it's just there. It comes it comes to you, and it looks like to the naked eye that I'm doing something, but the something is doing me. You know, it's so spontaneous and so fast you couldn't clock it. You know, it's faster than the speed of thought. You know, you don't have time to think about it because it's happening, you know, and that's the great thing about improvisation. If you just, uh, well, that's what improvisation is. You know, it's not a, it's not a stressed out condition. It's you just allowing yourself to just flow, you know, and, and not let your mind get in the way of it. And, and again, have, have fun with it. You know, I always like, uh, it's all about the song. Basically when I'm playing a song, anybody's song, I want to become the song, you know, I want to be the character in the song. If, if it's a song being sung, I remember I did it uh, two years ago with Eric Clapton and, and uh, I worked with him from, it was a whole, the project was from January to December of 2001. And there's a song in the set called um, uh, River of Tears, you know, do you know it? It's like a, it's, it's a, it's a well-known song by him. Right, yeah. Well, it's a very fucking sad song, pardon my language, but it's really sad. So when you're sitting there and it's, you know, it's, it's really sort of talking about his troubles with alcoholism and everything. And like a lot of people can relate to all that, you know, he's not the only one who had issues with that. But as I'm sitting there playing piano, I'm not singing. I think I sang backing vocals in it, but I'm just playing the chords of the song, but as I'm listening to the song, I'm feeling to be the character that he's singing about. You know, even if I historically know he might be singing about himself, but that's what you, that's when you become the song. That's when you let music take over and you stop thinking, you stop thinking egoically about your so-called self, your time-based self, you know? and just totally get lost in the music, let it take you over. And I'd be sitting there sometimes, and I'm I'm close to it's coming down here. It's just, just about to come down, you know? And I'm just hanging in there, I'm hanging in, but I'm feeling it, I'm feeling it as real deep emotion. And that somehow apparently comes out, um, you know, to, to people's uh, awareness.
Now, I know you only have a little bit of time left. Um, I want to ask you about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. What was it like to be inducted? Was it was it a great, was it something that you sit there, was it all that you thought of, like when you hear about it? I mean, what was it like? It was more than I thought of, because I'd never, first of all, you know, I wasn't thinking about it, be, ever being in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But as a night, it was amazing, because I did double duty. I was playing uh, with the E Street Band, and so I had to rehearse with them. Uh, I think we did a couple of songs. We did Kitty's Back and something else, and it's something that Patty sang on. And then it was the same night that Peter Gabriel got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I'd been in Peter's band, did a lot of tours with him. So he called me up and said, hey, this is happening. And can you, you know, do it? So I said, yeah. So now I'm rehearsing also with Peter Gabriel, <laughs> the man who catches Peter Gabriel, Dave Rosa. And uh, I think Tony couldn't do it because so, he was away somewhere. So and I was going back and forth in dressing rooms. And that day they had to have one set of dressing rooms when I was with the E Street band. And I remember I was sharing a room with uh, Jesse and uh jesse and myself and i don't know was it max or somebody two of three of us from mystery band and then when that slot was up rehearsal slot okay we got to take you to another room because you're going to have your stuff to wear with peter gabriel and get on so it was quite a day and quite a night man uh it was great it was just great and i couldn't uh i didn't go to sleep uh, we we drove back to we got driven back to woodstock it was like the sun was already up it was a great after party and uh, my wife was there, uh, my publicist from Canada was there, but super special. And um, just to get to see everybody and be with them and, and um, play the music. And, you know, they very kindly let you say stuff uh, as you accept your uh, reward, your award, excuse me. And, um, you know, I, I got to thank my family, basically, uh, for... for uh, supporting me for inspiring me and supporting me you know that's a you asked earlier in the thing how did my family feel about my decision to be a musician they absolutely did support it they saw that i was serious about it and and uh in all kinds of ways you know whenever they could they did support me i i gotta ask you this question because my friends who are springsteen fans will kill me if i don't the East Street Band, you lived on East Street, how'd it come out? Because everyone's like, I've had people go, oh, you know, he was the only guy who lived on East Street. Everyone always says that. It's like a trivia thing. But how did how did the band come about? And is that how, do people drive by your house now and go, hey, that's that's the East, no? No, they can't because they tore it down. Oh, man. They tore it down and rebuilt it. The house that we moved into doesn't exist anymore. They, whoever bought the house totally tore it down and built two houses on the same property. So it's not, it's, where I grew up is not physically there. Uh, how it came about to be called E Street Band is Bruce decided that he wanted it to be, he wanted to have a band name as well. He didn't want it to just be Bruce Springsteen. Bruce Springsteen just keep doing albums like he wanted to be Bruce Springsteen and the something. So we were tossing around band names, tossing around band names one time. And I remember we came back from, uh, I think we came back from Chicago somewhere and they were dropping me off. And he saw that we used to have these street signs, these little white um, clay obelisk things. Um, and in black letters, it would say, you know, 11th Avenue this way, E Street that way. And uh, for some reason, he saw it, he read it, it was E Street, E Street. Uh, okay, interesting. But, and then next thing I know, it's called the E Street Band. But I've been asked this question many times, and someone just pointed out to me, they sent me 
a quote from him in an interview that he did. So apparently how it happened is why I call it is, in his own words is, uh, we really needed to have a, a name for the band. And Davey, me, was a very important big part of the band. And that was it. That's why he decided to call it that, you know. Well, that's but, awesome. you know, I did yeah, I mean, of course, it's a fantastic honor. I'm, I'm beyond honored to be associated with uh, with the whole thing, you know. But that's uh, that's the answer in his words. It's a it's a quote. Well, I, I want to thank you for coming on. Now, the new album. Do we have a time date? You're seventy percent done. Do you do you have a time date? I'm going to say just to give myself more time. Maybe it'll happen. I'm going to say spring, summer of next year. And then, do you sit there and? Just you, you release it, you put it on spot. How does it work? How are you going to put it out? Uh, it'll be out. You'll be able to get it. Just like my last album, uh, if you're familiar with that, Eyes Wide Open. Yeah. So it'll, it'll be on the same platform, Headstrong Media, headstrongmedia.com. And it's also going to be on Apple Music. I think uh, Eyes Wide Open is on Apple and, and some other platform as well. So it'll be on several um, uh, platforms, streaming platforms and stuff. So... Uh, we'll, we're going to maintain the ones that we use for the last uh, record and maybe reach out to some others. Uh, but I'm going to get it as wide a streaming audience as possible and um, and see what happens. But it's going to be quite, uh, it's going to be very serious, you know, very serious. But I, I really feel like it's, uh, it needs to be said. And for some reason, the whole idea of it, uh, it's, it's been haunting me for a long time, so I'm, I'm very much at work on it, on the uh, the text of it, on uh, the title track. But it will be called The Ghost of Jim Crow. And before we go, what are the albums behind you? What are the gold albums behind you? Oh, that stuff. Well, uh, we have here, we got... Oh, oh, we got Sting. We got one, two, Sting. There's Bruce for uh, Wild and the Innocent. Aretha Franklin. Uh, an Italian artist named Zupido, who you might know of. Sting for Soul Cages. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, quite the collection. That's so awesome. That's so awesome. So anyway, I want to thank you for coming on. People, go to davidsanchez.com. Uh, you can follow him there. Uh, go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have over, have over 960 interviews. You can email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. Uh, Twitter, I'm at coopertalk. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next time.